0: James 2, verse 10. James writes this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we do pray that through the ministry of your Son and the active and dwelling ministry of your Holy Spirit that your word would be implanted in our hearts. We ask that your word would grow deep roots in our hearts. It would grow down into fertile soil in our affections. It would grow up into our minds, into our hands, and it would produce fruit how we live and how we act. We humble ourselves before your word this morning and we ask for it to do its work. In Jesus' name, amen. It was Charles Spurgeon who famously declared, quote, there is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relationship which exists between law and gospel. Let me say that quote one more time. There is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relationship between law and gospel. Now, you need to just know those two concepts very quickly. Law is the general concept for the commands of God. How God tells you to live, what he tells you to do. Law comes to us in various ways, through our conscience, through the revealed uh, nature of God through the world and through his written word. Law is something we're unable to keep. We break it and we're declared a sinner in light of it. Gospel, on the other hand, simply means good news. Gospel is what God has done to atone for our fact that we have broken his law. So two very different concepts. Law tells you what to do, but you can't, or in other words, law is bad news. And gospel tells you what God has done because of your inability, or good news. Why do people confuse those two concepts so readily? Let me give you an example of this. A lawyer once came up to Jesus and sought to test him, which is incredible in and of itself, (laughs) to put Jesus to the test. And he asked Jesus, what must a person do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is about to put on a clinic in how to cross-examine someone. (laughs) Jesus responds by saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which is an excellent question for a lawyer. What does the law say? Are you familiar with it, my lawyerly friend? <laughs> and so the lawyer here now answers and he says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's his answer. Notice what Jesus says. You are correct. That's it. Is that good news for that lawyer? You can have eternal life if you love the Lord your God perfectly. And also your neighbor. Is that good news for him? No. So now the the lawyer is caught in a trap of his own making. All Jesus has said so far is what does the law say and you are correct, that's it. (laughs) And he's trapped this man. Jesus gives his verdict here with this statement. Do this and you'll live. (laughs) Driving the, the law point home into his heart. You want to merit salvation, love the Lord perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, do that and you'll do it. You'll live. Now. The lawyer at this point is now publicly embarrassed in front of everybody. I mean, he's obviously condemned by this. And so he follows up with a loophole. Insert your own comment here. Lawyers and loopholes and whatnot. He desires to justify himself, Luke says. Classic statement right there. The lawyer desires to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, Who's my neighbor? I've got the loophole. Who's my neighbor? Notice that he just skates over the first half of the Decalogue, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He's like, check, check, check. Uh, Like the rich Jering ruler, I've done this since my youth. (laughs) That's not a problem for me. Just focuses on the second, the part about his his neighbor. Let me zoom in in there. It depends on what you mean by a neighbor. (laughs) And so Jesus says there once was a, a man who was going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and that road, if you're familiar with it, it's, it would take you most of the day to, to walk and it's dangerous. There's narrow parts, there's canyons and, and cliffs and ledges and it's ripe for robbers. And this man falls upon robbers and they uh, strip him naked and leave him half dead, the ESV says, which is a great way to render it. They leave him there half dead on the side of the road. And well, uh, later on in the afternoon, a, a priest walks by and sees him and walks by on the other side of the road so that he's not defiled by. and then a levite comes by and a levite's not going to touch a bleeding man on the side of the road so he crosses by on the other side as well and then comes some dirty good for nothing samaritan if you can believe that and he picks the man up and bandages him and cares for his wounds and checks him in at the nearest hotel leaves his credit card says he need anything put it on the credit card here i'll sign for it comes back the next day and signs for it and now jesus has another question which of these was a neighbor to the man The lawyer, now thoroughly condemned, says, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus again says, So go and do likewise. Again, I ask you is that law or is that gospel? Is that good news? That if you want to inherit eternal life, go love everybody like this Samaritan loved the woman on the side or the man on the side of the road. Is that is that is that helpful to you? Will that result in eternal life for you? That news. So go and love people in the world like that. See you next Sunday or in heaven. I mean you're not gonna get there. That is designed to condemn. And that is the nature of the law. I mean, this whole story is a subset underneath the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God perfectly, love your neighbors yourself. This is what that looks like. This is the nature of the law. Scripture passages that tell you what is required of you, but you're unable to keep. Now, there is a a popular idea that law is in tension with, with grace, and that you're supposed to balance that tension. You should have both law and grace. But listen, I'm telling you, that's not a, that's not a balance you can achieve. That's not something you can hold. You can't hold the law. The, nothing can hold the law. You can't balance the law with anything. It's a, it's a weight. It crushes you. You can't balance it but that is the majority view in the world and especially in Eastern religions, they embrace this idea that that law and grace are are like yin and yang and as law grows, that grace has to decline and then grace will grow and law will decline and there's this this balance, this harmony between law and, and grace. But I want you to understand that in the Bible, there's not a balance between law and grace. In the Bible, law and grace are two different freight trains coming at each other at 100 miles an hour full speed ahead and they collide right in a horrific crunch and that collision takes place in the person of jesus christ when jesus is born he has all the history of the law behind him every jot Every tittle, every command from God to the world is still in place and in force at the birth of Jesus Christ. He's born as a Jew, so he's under the Jewish law. All of the commands of the Old Testament are hanging over his head. He has a dual role, you could say. He's the law giver and now he has to be the the subject to the law. He's above it as he gave it, but now he's underneath it. Every one of those commands. And he now has to lead his life perfectly keeping these commands. Which, of course, he does. He never breaks one of the commands. He never fails to do something good that he should. And he never commits an act that is prohibited by the law. So he leads a sinless life. He never goes against his conscience. So we're getting even bigger than the law that the Jews had, the law that the Gentiles had about their conscience that condemns them. He never went against that. So he leads the sinless life. This is the first freight train, all the demands of God's law. There is also inherent in God the desire to save people from their sins. This too is in God. And this too is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. His name means God saves and this is what I mean when I say they collide in him. God's desire to save is what produces the sending of Jesus Christ, but the demand of the law is what is hanging over Jesus Christ It ultimately leads, ultimately leads to the death. Jesus in his life doesn't hold law and gospel in tension. Rather, he places himself perfectly under the authority of the law. And he keeps the law perfectly. And notice what that got him. He was killed for lots of reasons but let's focus on the how it relates to the law. He was condemned by God for being a lawbreaker not because he personally had ever sinned but because our sins were placed on him. so your sins when you have sinned and broken God's law God through transfer through imputation, takes your sins, your actual guilt from you and imputes them to Jesus so that Jesus on this last day of his life when he is standing in a very real sense before God for judgment, he is standing as a condemned man, rightfully condemned because our sins have been placed on him. Even in the area of things in human terms that he wasn't in control of, he was condemned by the law. Let me give you, I think, the best example of this. I mean, you all understand how he was condemned because our sins were given to him. But you understand the law is what was condemning him, rightly so. Not even only in the area of imputation because Deuteronomy 21 verse 22, let me read it to you. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he's to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. This is what happened to Jesus. Our sins, punishable by death, were imputed to him and now he's hung on the tree. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 21, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Now, this is what is in the mind of the Jews that want Jesus down off of the tree. You remember, they, they go back to Pilate and they say, you've got to let us take him down off the tree because this is a, a high Sabbath is next. So the, the next day, he was crucified, of course, on a, a Friday. The next day, Sabbath, sundown, the Sabbath begins. It's a high Sabbath day. And so the implication of their words is that normally they'd be okay violating Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. They would be okay with it under normal circumstances, but not on a high Sabbath day. So they need the body down. Pilate sends the soldiers out to break the legs of the other thieves they find that Jesus is already dead Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 tells you why this was so important though you must take him down from the tree and bury him on the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God Paul quotes this in the book of Galatians to identify that the effect of the law on Jesus although he kept it was to curse him He was cursed by the law so the law condemns it even condemns jesus but the gospel gives life and i want you to see how it gives life through the law it doesn't give life contrary to the law it gives life through the law because jesus was condemned by the law and his guilt was evident through imputation Yet, his innocence was renowned even in the halls of heaven. I mean, the the angels knew that he had kept a sinless life. The father knew that he did not, in fact, commit those sins. It was was imputation to him. So because of his innocence, he can resurrect. He's the author of life. You cannot slay the author of life. And so he was killed for our sins and transgressions. He was resurrected because he is the sinless, spotless, undefiled child of God. He rises from the grave three days later. Through his resurrection, he commissions his disciples to preach the gospel to the nations. And so in a very direct way, the law kills him and through his death comes life. If there is no death, if there is no cursing from the law, if there is no crushed by the law, then there can be no resurrection to life. And so for you to have the gospel, you have to go through the condemning, slaying power of the law. Which leads you like a rope to the gospel. And that's what I mean when I say that Jesus brings any tension between the law and gospel, he brings them into focus in this one person. You want to know what the law-gospel relationship is? You look at Jesus and it is personified, but not personified in a tension that you'll live out your whole life. The train crash that happens in Jesus, that doesn't happen to you because it happened to him. So I'm gonna switch my word picture here to get into the text of James. We're gonna go from the train crash image to a freeway image. I want you not to be in a train crash. I want you to be on the freeway. I want you to be driving on the I'm going to call it the gospel freeway. <laughs> I want you driving on the gospel freeway with the, the top down and your hair blowing in the winds. <laughs> 100 miles an hour. Don't tell the state patrol. How do you get there? How do you get to the free life, the life of liberty, the life of love, the life of freedom in the gospel? How do you get to that freeway? And that's what this is about. First, the on-ramp is the law that kills the law that kills now verse 10 here whoever keeps the whole law and just let's just talk here about the word law i'm a dispensationalist which means i believe the church is not israel that the old testament law the torah was given to israel not to us as gentiles or as even the church so Nevertheless, there's another law that's at play here. I mean, again, any command from God is law. Even the command to Adam in the garden, don't eat the fruit, which of course is what he was unable to abide by and condemned him to the Torah, all the way to our own conscience. I mean, Paul lets you know in Romans that when your conscience convicts you of things, that it becomes a law unto itself, especially when you condemn others for doing those things. You know? So the moment you tell somebody, don't steal my wallet, the moment you lock your car door, you're testifying that you're condemned as a sinner because you are revealing the fact that you know stealing is wrong. Well, who told you that was wrong? You just know it, it comes from God himself. Your conscience convicts you about adultery, about greed, about lust, about anger, about murder, about covetousness, about lying. I mean, you'd rattle through the list. So that is the law of God. And it's the law of God revealed in the natural world, even to Gentiles. Gentiles demonstrate they have it and become a law unto themselves when they uh, you know, punish others for breaking it. So James here is writing to a Jewish audience. They ha- probably have in mind the, the Torah, specifically the Ten Commandments he's gonna go to in a second. But understand, this same point is true for Gentiles. It's equally true. That even the examples he uses are true for both Jews and Gentiles even those who are never under the Torah. And his point here is this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one moment, at one point, has become guilty of all of it. The hypothetical person who's led a sinless life his whole life and just sins one time, James says, is guilty of breaking the whole law. And forget about the one time thing, let's just deal with the one sin thing. A person who's generally a good person in 99 ways But as a sinner with the one besetting sin that they keep doing, they're guilty of all the other 99 ways they don't do. If you break the law at one point, you've broken the whole entire thing because the law is a unit. As I said, it's the expression of God's holiness. It's what comes from his character to the Jews through The Torah to Gentiles through conscience and natural revelation. And when you break it, it is called sin. And that speaks not of something you do, of who you are. The law is a mirror. It's held up to you, not to show you how to live, but to show you how you can't live, specifically to show you what you look like. You are a sinner. If you break the law at one point, it doesn't just demonstrate that you've sinned one time. It demonstrates that you, by your nature, your genetic DNA makeup, who you are is a sinner. That's what the law does. And any sin shows that. Any sin. Now, Christians often say a phrase like, all sins are equal before God. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. And that can rub some people the wrong way, like a cat backwards here. It just kind of bristles you. Because there's, it's not true in every regard, but it is true in some Regards. So for example, when somebody says all sins are equal before God, what we don't mean by that is that murder is the same thing as being angry at somebody. They're not the same thing. They're different when you actually killed the person. Or that adultery is the same thing as lust. They're not the same thing. They're different with different effects. And and even God's word treats them differently. There's a concept in the Bible called high-handed sins. Murder is one. Adultery is one. There's no atonement in the Old Testament for high-handed sins. There is atonement for other kinds of sins. There's just differences in effects, differences of of kind of the degrees of sin, the amount of how hard your heart has to be to commit that kind of sin. Not every sin is exactly the same. But there is one respect in which they are all the same. Namely, every sin is an act against the character of God. So every sin breaks his, his demonstration of his character to you. Every sin is a rejection of who he is. And that's true no matter what kind of sin it is. Covetousness versus grand larceny. Both reveal that you are rejecting the character and the nature of God. One commentator writes, All sins are not equally damaging or heinous, but they all shatter the unity and they all render man as transgressors the two examples here in James in verse 9 if you uh, practice racism if you are a racist if you show partiality you're condemned by the law verse 15 if you fail to love uh, your neighbor as yourself you're condemned by the law those are the two examples James gives if you show favoritism or partiality you're condemned by the whole law if you don't love your neighbor you're condemned by the whole law this is if you murdered and that's because the whole law reflects the character of God. It doesn't make sense to say, I've kept a lot of it. There were, in fact, a school of thought in Judaism in Jesus' lifetime that taught if you kept the phylactery on your head and the tassels and your, you know, the curls in your hair and all that, that stood in for keeping the whole law. You didn't have to keep the rest of it if you did that because that represented keeping all of it. And today, that school of thought is alive and well in Israel with the Sabbath. There's many people in in Israel that believe that by keeping the Sabbath, they're keeping the whole law. So you don't have to do all the other stuff because you've done the Sabbath. And that, of course, is what James is dealing with here. He says, just turn it around. You wanna see a unity from the Sabbath to everything else. You keep this, you've kept everything else. Well, if if there's unity there, flip it around. If you break it at one point, you've broken all of it. Imagine the person fishing. Deep sea fishing, the line is cast out there long, 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 the tide is taking it away and you get a bite, you caught your stingray, you know, it's on the end of your line. If your fishing line snaps at the top of the pole, the middle of the line, or in the mouth of the stingray, it doesn't matter at which point it snapped, it has the equal effect. The whole catch is gone. That's the idea with the law, if you break it at one point, you have broken the whole thing. In fact, James says, you've become accountable for all of it. That word accountable, it's a Greek word. It's a legal term, actually, in, the, in Greek society. In Hebrews 2, it's translated as enslaved, where it says the devil has led you into slavery to the fear of death. It's the same word, that, that you are in custody. You've been handcuffed. You don't have freedom. Your freedom of mobility is lost. It's being arrested. You've been arrested by the law, and you're guilty in front of the law. That's this word. You haven't mouthed the word guilty yet, but you are. The closest English thing in English law to this word would be a plea of no contest. You know, you're arrested by the police. You are arraigned. You're there in your orange jumpsuit and you're shackled and you look at all the evidence in front of you and it's insurmountable. There's so much evidence against you, you can't even get your mind around it, but you're not quite at the place in your life where you're able to say guilty. And so we have a plea for that. I plead no contest. Basically, I get that all this evidence is really bad (laughs) and I can't explain it. So I'm just gonna be quiet. (laughs) That's this word. The Greek word is closest to that. If you've broken the law one time, if you've sinned one time, you have to plead no contest to the whole law because it is all used against you in court. Let me give you an example. Exodus 20 verse 13 says do not murder you know what the next verse says do not commit adultery or Deuteronomy 5 verse 17 you shall not murder the next verse says 518 you shall not commit adultery so it doesn't make a lot of sense to say I'm okay with one but not the other and I can say I've kept the the law of God or the commands of God You, you can't arbitrarily divide them it's one fabric you can chuckle at the phylacteries and the tassels thing but believe me that's where many americans are in their thinking they wouldn't say oh by doing this that means i don't have to do the rest because i've done this but most americans are in the same boat where they think i have i'm a good person because think of all the things i don't do and i do do these two things that stands in for for doing all the good things and i don't do these bad things by the way remember that i don't do them and there's a person who does do all these bad things and they're sitting over here saying i'm a good person." because I do these good things which cancel out these bad things. That's the way most, it seems in my experience, typical Americans think. I'm generally a good person because there's lots of bad things they don't do. I mean, try that with a traffic ticket. You get pulled over, 45 and a 35, and you tell the officer, listen, I drive this road every day, and this is the first day I've sinned, the first day I've been a speeder. And you say that, you, when you say that, you think that you're establishing your innocence, but all he hears is that you're pleading guilty, like you just confessed. (laughs) But that's how we are towards God. We think I'll be okay with God because I'm generally a good person. What's on trial here is not, are you generally a good person? The law is given to you for you to see that you are a sinner because you have broken God's law. The whole fabric of law, it's like a, a night watchman who falls asleep one time and the whole store is plundered. You can't say, but you know, I was on duty five nights this week and this is the only one that I fell asleep on. You could say it like this it's like a plate glass window you can't kind of break a plate glass window you can't just put one little hole in it the whole thing will shatter do you think that your non-adultery will make up for your murder or that your non-murder will make up for your adultery So let me make an appeal to you let me appeal to you to see yourself here as the lawbreaker i fear that there are many people that have made professions of faith in christ but have never been broken by the law i fear that there are many people let me let me talk specifically to the lukewarm if you're here to this morning and you're thinking i have a hard time reading the bible i don't seem to have affection for christ i'm not drawn to his word i just i seem distant from him let me ask you this question. I mean, there, there, there might be those that would say your problem is self-esteem, you know, pick yourself up and think rightly of yourself and, you know, have a you know, better view of who you are, but I want to go at it differently. I want to say, let me ask you, have you ever thought low enough of yourself? Have you ever been slain by the law? Have you ever been struck down by God's law? Or if you let the commands of the law just bounce off of you like toy arrows, do you look at the Bible and the moment you start to get convicted of sin, do you think, yeah, I, I mean, I know that's bad, but there's, you know, generally I'm a good person. I'm a Christian, I go to church and all that, so this is, not, this is not me that's the bad person here. I'm not the lawbreaker. That is going to keep you off of the highway I'm trying to get you onto. You have to go through the law. You have to be arrested, tried, and convicted by the law. You have to see in yourself to use the language in verse 9, the language of partiality. You look at somebody else and you judge them, but you have to realize that you are condemned because you've broken the whole law. I fear there are many who have not been slain by the law. There are many who are, though they are spiritually dead, fancy themselves alive and well and pretend they're free. If you've never been slain by the law, let The law work in your heart now note your own sin note that it's not small and note that it makes you guilty for all but if you have been slain by the law take heart because there's a resurrection if you have been held captive by the law take heart because there's liberty as we sang earlier out of the ashes rises this truth secondly the freeway the liberty that lives. You saw the on-ramp, the law that kills. Well, the freeway is the liberty that lives. Now, through being slain by the law, you recognize that you can have resurrection through Christ. This is where there's freedom to live your Christian life. This is verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This is another, wondering the law gospel distinction very clear in your mind, because if you changed one word in this verse, it would not be good news. If now it said, so speak and so act as those who would be judged by the law period, or the law of God period, that's not good news for you. <laughs> but instead it says, so speak and so act who judge judged under the law of liberty. And first of all, a quick note, these two imperatives, speak and act. These are the first two imperatives in this whole section of James. This is not a list of imperatives, but you get them here. You want to know how is this practical? How is this practical living right here? Speak and act in this way. Well, what is the way? Speak and act like those who will be judged by God's law. Now, speaking of how does it mean that Christians will be judged by God's law, I don't want to spend time on that this morning. We'll see that later on in the book of James. So just have patience to that. We'll get back to that later on but for now let me just say it this way under the law of liberty that's a phrase that jesus himself has used if you're in the sun you have freedom you're free from the the burdens his his yoke is easy his burden is light the burden of the law is heavy the burden of the law crushes you the burden of the law bears you down it kills you that's what it was designed to do but here's the difference when it crushed christ he rose again so if you are crushed by the law and then united to Christ in faith, you through faith are united with Christ. You have a resurrection from the law. Because, and they would know this, the Jews are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is in James two, he's writing to people that had the Sermon on the Mount, they understand what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus here, Matthew five, verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law, rather I came to fulfill the law. And so the law is fulfilled in Christ. How is it fulfilled in him? Well, he kept it and it crushed him and then he rose from the dead. So, you through your faith, when you are crushed by the law, united by faith in Christ, you now rise with him. You now have liberty. You're free from the law because the law has already killed you. And now you've resurrected with him. Before Christ, you're not able to keep the law. You're not inclined to, and you're definitely not able to keep it perfectly, which means you're condemned for breaking all of it. But in Christ, in Christ, the law has been kept for you. He kept it for you. Now, that doesn't mean there is no longer a law. There's a whole school of, of quote unquote, Christianity that teaches that once you're in Christ, there's no law for you. You can live like you want to live. You can do what you want to do. There's no more law that you are supposed to follow and that's called antinomianism and that is that is a heresy it is dangerous teaching because it's designed by people to cover up their own immorality and this verse does not say because you're in christ you have no more law in fact the imperative here is so speak and so act as those who be judged by the law of liberty so there's a positive horizontal element of this You are now connected to Christ who's resurrected. So he was crushed, you were crushed, he's resurrected. You through faith are with him resurrected. The law has gone from being over you in a burden that crushes you to being underneath you, a platform upon which you can stand. And now you can walk in freedom to live according to law. You can't give all you have to the poor to earn eternal life before Christ, but now that you're in Christ, there's a freedom with your money and your resources. You can't do the good Samaritan story to earn eternal life, nobody can live like that. But now in Christ, there's this freedom to love and to care for your neighbors that you did not have outside of Christ. And this is not moralism, my friends, this is being in Christ. And when you break the law, it doesn't crush you, Because if you've sinned, you have an advocate before the Father who who pleads for you and makes atonement for your sin and forgives you of your trespasses. But that's only because you're in Him. And how did you get to being in Him? By being crushed by the law and resurrected in Him. So the pathway to freedom, the pathway to Christian liberty, the the pathway to a full, vibrant, Good Samaritan-esque life comes from being slain by the law and then raised in christ the one who said adultery flows from lust and murder flows from hatred is the one who said he fulfills the law the one who says if you've hated you've murdered if you've lusted you're an adulterer is the one who fulfilled those laws and now when you're in him you're no longer condemned by those laws. They condemned you on the (laughs) on-ramp, and now they give you freedom. Freedom to love your brother. It's a freedom that comes from having the law, by the way. This is why it's called the law of liberty. It doesn't mean you're back under the commands of the Old Testament. As Speaking to Gentile Christians here, speaking to those in the church, this doesn't mean you're under the laws of the Old Testament. It means you're under the moral attributes of God the the commands of Christ in the New Testament this is they become freeing for us they used to condemn us but now through the gate of the gospel they are freedom there's a freedom that comes from having the law that tells you how to live and how to love and it does this by putting Christ in the center of it so as you look at him it brought into focus your life is now built around him because you're in him the law before Christ presents a burden you can't carry The law in Christ presents substitutionary atonement for your sin. The law after Christ presents freedom to live and to love and to forgive, liberty. This is why Jesus says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. But this is only a freedom you get to through death. This is what the psalmist means in Psalm 119, verse 29. Be gracious to me through death. Your law. This is the vehicle of grace. The law. Now what does that mean? Because you don't think of law producing grace. Well it does if it first kills you. (laughs) It can then give you grace and resurrect you. It's less of attention and more of an order. You could say it that way. To get to grace you go through law. To get to life you go through death. Martin Luther said it this way, whoever knows well this art of dividing the law from gospel should be given a place at the front of the room and be called a doctor of Holy Scripture. (laughs) Understand that if you want to bring someone to Christ, you bring them through the knowledge of their own sin. You bring them through the law. This is what's symbolized in every element of Christianity really. This is why baptism, you go under and then up. (laughs) You drown and then live. Death and then life. This is what the essence of Christianity is in this sentence. Whoever wants to find his life must first, what? Lose it. You want to help somebody who doesn't know the Lord find their life? You know what you have to help them do first? Lose it. You want to help someone have a vibrant Christian life? They have to go through the gate of death. But whoever loses his life, Jesus says, for my sake, will gain it. What does it take to have eternal life? It takes loving the Lord your God perfectly, loving your neighbor perfectly. Or it takes being united by faith to someone who's done that. And the only one who has is Jesus Christ. And once you're found in Christ, you are free to live as he did, knowing that you'll fail, knowing that you will sin, knowing that you will fail to walk as he walked. And when you do, you know that you are still in liberty because Christ has borne the wrath for your sin. Lord, we give you thanks for the freedom we have in Christ. We give you thanks that you, though resurrected, still reign. The reigning still love, and the loving still save through this world. We're grateful that the gospel call goes forth into the world. I pray for hearts who are here this morning that have never been slain by the law. They've never confessed their sins. They've never recognized themselves as a sinner. I pray this morning you'd work in their heart, convict them of sin, and help them find a refuge in you. You are the rock of ages cleft for us. You shelter us from the storm and the wrath of the law's demands which beat down on those in the world but they serve as a refuge for us who have found safety in Christ. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia. And for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.